This is Speaking of Faith's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Jennifer Michael Hecht, author of Doubt a History. I spoke with her in November 2003 from the studios of American Public Media in St. Paul, Minnesota. She was in New York City. This interview is included in our program, A History of Doubt, which was originally broadcast in December 2003 and updated in January 2009. Download the MP3 of that produced show at speakingoffaith.org. Um, so, we, so this program, um, inspired by your book, we decided to do this program on doubt. And the, one of the uh, things that we do differently in terms of method is I, do, I, I don't invite people to speak for traditions or for God or for the Bible or for all Catholics or Jews or whatever. Um, I do. I try to say we walk this line of uh, the intersection between human, between theology and human experience. So I, I try to encourage people to talk in the first person about you know not only we do talk about big ideas, but also how these big ideas connect with your life. So I may, I may push you on that a little bit or ask you sometime to to make those connections if you would. Mm. So, okay. but you don't need to. I'll I'll tell you when we when we want to go there. Okay. Mitch would like to hear you speaking and no more of me. So, But let's not uh, tell me what you had for lunch. All right. Let's see. What should I have for lunch? I had, I had a sandwich, which I had to uh, run downstairs to the deli downstairs to get a new loaf of bread in order to eat the sandwich. <laughs> and uh, let's see. What else can I tell you about the sandwich? It was a pretty simple sandwich, but it was okay. satisfying. All right. He says he's got enough. All right. Now we can talk <laughs> substance. <laughs> Well, um, you know, I do. I thought I could. I, I could give you your own quiz, but I won't do that. Um, but I, I did want to ask you. You know, how how did you get into this project, this history of doubt? Yeah, the um, the, the story, I suppose, evolves in a lot of different ways. But the the clearest way of saying it is that I'm a historian. I got my PhD at Columbia University, and and I was studying mostly history of science and. As I was studying all aspects, history of science allows you to have a rather broad range of fields. And as I was studying history in general, I noticed doubters. I enjoyed them. They're um, they're iconoclastic. They're questioning. You have to be a little bold and a little brave in most periods of time to be a doubter. And uh, I liked them. I also was surprised by them because the dominant history basically suggests that doubt is very modern and that we had a few doubters in the ancient world, but basically doubt is a modern phenomenon. And I kept seeing it everywhere. And so I just wanted to tell that story. I I thought believers knew the story. That is, I thought, excuse me, I thought thought historians knew the story, but um, never thought of it as a story. And I thought most people didn't even know the story. So I was just going to to, to sketch it out. And then when I did the research for it, I found it was much more cohesive and self-knowing than I had ever dreamed. Hmm. Yeah, it, it's huge. Oh, I should, I should say also, I think you know this, but this is not live. We get to take our time and it doesn't have to be word perfect. And if you feel right. like, you know, if we, if we talk about something and then you want to come back to it 10 minutes later, we can do that. So oh, that's don't, good. this doesn't have to be, we, we have the luxury of a real conversation. Wonderful. Um, yeah, and you make this very intriguing proposition that then really bears itself out, as you say, as you tell the story, that 
that there that this history of doubt is sort of an alternative history that's running alongside the history of belief, which is the story we usually tell ourselves mm-hmm. and the way we measure pinnacles and turning points of history. Yeah, we tend to look at the the doubters that that are in common knowledge as sort of shadows on the history of belief, and we we look at. Um, in a similar way, we look at cosmopolitan questioning times in history often as periods of decline. Mm. We like to celebrate a time when all Greeks, for instance, seemed involved in the same idea of the city-state and were worshipping the same gods and celebrating the same civic ideas. And we see that as as this great lost time, we similarly uh, laud the early American town where the whole town knew each other and had the same values and went to the same church. Right. And, and we see that as – and I think that there's a reason to celebrate them. The, those periods tend to be very nourishing for the ideal citizens in them. Of course, mm. a lot of people are left out generally, but but they tend to be very satisfying. But on the other hand, the cosmopolitan periods that are the periods of mixing and questioning and and uh, new ideas competing with old ideas, these periods we tend to sort of just gloss over. And the history of doubt needs to really celebrate those times as the periods of time that have the, the all the fireworks in them. You know, what it reminded me of is uh, how when I took a course in women's history when I was in college in the early 80s, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and how, you know, in that instance, how, let's say, when we tell the story of wartime, we tell that we've always told the story of men at war when, when what was happening for women in this country at that time is they were going to work, right? So That's it was right. this other history that had a completely different power for other people. In the society. That's right, and and dramatic stories that were were involving more people than the the number of people at war, and yeah. so it's you know it's yeah. the same same deal. And so it's a it's a it's a wonderful way to open up the subject, I think. Um, and I, you know, I'd like to talk about ancient Greece because another thing that struck me as I read the whole book is how um, there were certain. Um, philosophies or schools of philosophy or, I don't know, approaches to life. And I'm thinking here of the Stoics, the Cynics, the Skeptics, the Epicureans, mm-hmm. which in some way, some ways d- developed during in that period of time, in that place, and and keep reappearing all through this history of doubt that you tell and still are really formative categories with which we talk about ourselves in our time. So I thought I might ask you to dwell on that story that you discovered there. And, you know, let's go through some of these terms and talk about what they meant when they were born. Like, you know, mm-hmm. who, the, who were the cynics? Okay, for instance, the cynics. Um, these, all the movements you just mentioned are Hellenistic period uh, philosophers and philosophies. This is a time when the 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 first chapter of the book is called Whatever Happened to Zeus and Hera? Yeah. And and indeed, you know, I mean, I went to that questioning it myself. I knew that there were people who are sort of rationalist and literary historian type of chipping away at those ideas, just questioning, would a god really have done what Zeus did there? That doesn't seem likely. And and saying things like, well, you know, wine is so such a good thing. We probably just made it into a god back when we were more primitive people. Yeah. Um, that kind of thinking. And by the time you get to the Hellenistic period, which is a period after Alexander the Great has sort of stirred up the Greek world, 
You, you have people in general don't believe in the Greek gods. There really is widespread disbelief in the Greek gods. They're still around. They still have, have ritual meaning, and they still have meaning as representations of Greece, but people don't believe in them. And the Epicureans, the Cynics, the Stoics, the Skeptics especially, uh, come about trying to... to posit a way of living in the absence of gods. And the cynics are an amazing group because they really suggest that that this universe that we're in is not one that is very human. We keep trying to impose humanity on it. And instead, we should take the universe's unhumanness and, and take that into ourselves. And, and cynic meant dog. And the, yeah, the idea so was to yeah the idea was to live life in the same way a dog does. Why why try to press against this mad universe our plans and memories and desires and try to defend them against against this, the cruel world when instead we could just kind of go with the flow and not worry about our dignity, for instance. And that's really the key point of being like the dogs. Live outside. Then you don't have to defend a house. Live live casually. You go to the bathroom the same way dogs go to the bathroom. Don't be ashamed of yourself and don't try to accomplish anything. It's It's... When we think of cynicism today, we tend to think of people dismissing even those things dogs love, and right. that's inappropriate. Well, right. we think of cynics as we think of cynicism as a posture, right? That's right, and as a dismissive a dismissal yes. of, of everything. And really, it was to when we think about other um, other people who have decided to reject a great deal of the human culture world, we often think about those as having tremendous dedication, say, on a Buddhist model where you're, or a, a mystical model, mm-hmm. where you, you really sequester yourself and try to get rid of the, even a religious model, you know, certainly to, to go into the desert and meditate. And the cynics were more along those lines in a way. They weren't <laughs> grandiose. They didn't suggest any transcendental experience to come out of it. But what they expected was to be happy and to have true friendship and loyalty because that was the only thing that they were cherishing, to be yourself, to expect change in the world, and to try to protect yourself from the vicissitudes of life by... Hmm. By not taking on anything that is too difficult to defend, too difficult, too different from the universe itself, and they were they were charming, and and hundreds of men and women came across from across the the empires to practice with the 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 leader that we think of is is uh, Diogenes and right. And uh, to just live around him, and the, he's almost always depicted sort of lying around in the sun. Uh, we have that great story about him and Alexander the Great, where Alexander the Great has heard of this impressive philosopher oh, and yes. comes to mm-hmm. him and says, "says you know, uh, what can I give you? I'll give you any gift." Which was both a sort of tease that because um, if he gave him a great deal of money, of course, he seduced the cynic away from the cynical life. And and Diogenes says, "Yeah, I can think of something you can do for me. Could you step out?" Of my son, he was, he was blocking his sunlight, and and Alexander the Great once said, "Were he not Alexander, he would be Diogenes," <laughs> because it was it, it's the, these are two men who both had a tremendous amount of ambition, and one dealt with it by going out and conquering the world, <laughs> and the other by conquering his own ambition. 
Hmm. It's a, a fascinating way to go about things. It is. Okay, and what about skeptics? Tell me the story of the original skeptics. Skepticism is also amazing, and it goes, it, I think it runs even more strongly through the course of history. Uh, right from the beginning of philosophy, you have questioning. But it's really with Socrates that we, we date the earliest idea of skepticism, just the idea of saying, I don't know anything, and that the human mind isn't really designed to know things. It's, we, you know, the natural world has designed us to stay alive and to reproduce, but, hmm. but not really to gather truth. And we shouldn't expect too much from it. We should try to know the world by questioning what we can't know and, and taking that kind of approach. And, you know, Socrates said he knew more than anybody else because he knew he didn't know anything. <laughs> so that's one origin of skepticism. But skepticism really gets going really centuries later when there have been so many different competing philosophies that people look up and say, how could they all be right? And that's really the amazing gesture of skepticism. And a guy named Pyro is the the original thinker of that. Uh, we just don't know too much about him. So we we think of skepticism as as both the questioning of our ability to know anything philosophically, but also just plain looking at the variety of philosophies and saying they're all so brilliant. They all convince me when I hold them that book in my hand. Hmm. How can I then think that any one of them holds real truth? And so at first, skepticism was a denial of any ability to know anything. Later, it develops brilliantly into a study of probabilities so that it, it says depending on the the kind of claim you make, you need different kinds of evidence or different kinds of proof to be able to back that up. And it it's the the whole origin of, of the kind of probability theory where we can say, okay, we don't know things for sure, but we can make guesses about how we should live and how we should think on the basis of these different kinds of, of evidences. And if I think about um, the degree of pluralism and variety of ideas and even religions in our time, you know, it's an interesting approach to bring to that, to the fact it's of pluralism. Hmm. Yeah, and, and it was huge in the in the Renaissance period for the same reason. Uh, Montaigne is the great Renaissance skeptic, and he, um, you, you know, it's an amazing thing to watch because the ancient Greeks came upon their, their great variety of philosophies slowly, piecemeal. Meanwhile, Montaigne is living in a period of time that's discovering whole libraries and translating them. Oh. And so he gets all these philosophies sort of all at the same time mm. as any as any young person in today's society going to college gets all these different ideas all at the same time. And he really says, you know, each one of these philosophers can convince me of anything. And he deals with it by essentially knocking their heads together and saying there are too many of them, so they must not know anything, even though each <laughs> one seems smarter than me. <laughs> All right. And what about the Epicureans? I must say that I think that is um, a stereo. That's probably the one that, let, let's say, we use the word cynic and skeptic in um, in our language today. We don't mm-hmm. use the term Epicurean very much, but you point out that that is actually also a very important thread in this history of doubt. 
Yeah, when you do see the word, it's almost always in terms of somebody who who loves great food. Right, hedonistic and is what we think. That's right, yeah. and you know, in, in this kind of refined way. And really, Epicurus more suggested that we refine our hungers rather than the food. You know, learn to to, to love the the things that we have. Learn to to recognize that there is nothing better than cold water when you are thirsty. Mm. And so, to remember thirst and to rem- to remember that kind of relationship. Um, He's uh, he's one of the absolute great heroes of the history of doubt. He's he, you know he's in any Western Civ textbook, but you really don't get the sense of his incredible importance. But in the history of doubt, he's as large a figure as, as Socrates. He he, um, he he doesn't only negate. He doesn't only question the overall ideas of religion and of meaning that were handed to him by the rest of society. He makes these amazing suggestions for how we should live in the absence of a religious world or of of a, a world guided by gods. And that's why he's so important and so beloved. His biggest his biggest claim is that the that the fear of that fear is what is what ruins our lives and that the big fears are fear of pain, and he says, "Forget about fear of pain. It's usually much worse than the actual pain." It's <laughs> so true. We can. It is. Yeah. It is true. It's yeah. so amazing. And he says, "Acute pain, really intense pain, is usually short-lived." And I suppose we we have to mention, you know, because if it's too long-lived, you usually die of it. Mm. But he says, usually, heart, really terrible pain is quick and. And the kind of chronic pain you can get used to, but the fear of it, that's what gets us. And he says the, the, the second great fear is fear of the gods, and he says forget about that. There, there really aren't any. He suggests that the idea of gods came from these sort of image beings that, that are exist between the universes. Uh, he's one of the first people to really develop this idea that that if creation happened here, if the, if the world sort of bloomed into existence somehow, it must have happened in other in other areas too and so the world is many universes and and he thinks these these image things that have been mistaken as gods they don't know about us they don't care about us they're not in any way intervening so for all intents and purposes there are no gods and so we don't have to be frightened of them we're free to enjoy the world and then the biggest fear is fear of death Hmm. and that he says that's the real thing that we have to deal with to get our minds right to live in this world. You have to accept that death is real, that it ends everything, that it comes along when it's going to come along, but that, that that's okay. It actually makes the sweetness of life. It makes the, the joy to realize that this moment is the moment that we have and all we have. And that, that death, he says, is, is so final that there's nothing to mourn. We won't be there to be sad about it. And he, he says you've got to meditate on this idea. You've got to think about it over and over. And he gives a lot of different delightful formulations of it. Um, and that's been the, uh, the, the, the great doctrine that keeps coming back, sometimes you know, most often citing Epicurus, but often in other ways too, because it really is one of the great the great religious questions. Um, you know, I I have a quiz in the beginning of the yes. book which tries to tease out uh, from the reader to help the reader sort of just get into the spirit of the thing because I think that we accept these sort of clusters of belief 
And we think of, uh, for instance, there being a God and there being an afterlife as being really um, inseparable ideas. But why? Mm. They, they aren't really. There are they 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 separate quite easily, and you can ask yourself, do I believe in this part? Do I believe in this part? And that's what the quiz is designed to do to sort of get people to to take to unpack the the packages of belief that they have and see what they which parts they have uh, more of a commitment to, which parts they they reject. You know, it's, and, and yeah, it strikes me that maybe um, we can put the quiz on our website if we can get permission to do that. That might be fun. To, oh yeah, to absolutely. Think well, yeah. all right. So, so something that um, that I become aware of then is we th- we think so much about doubt as sort of outright rejection uh, of something, of God, of religion, of of taking apart theologies and beliefs. But when you're describing this early history of doubt, which then continues to mark um, all the the generations that come after it. It's, it seems like it has positive virtues and that it's that sometimes I mean, just what you just just described about Epicurus, it's, it's more about wondering whether belief matters at all and how how it matters or if it doesn't sort of getting on with life. Yeah, I mean, it, the thing is, most m- most doubters throughout history um, even if they doubted all the way to not believing in any kind of religious idea, they weren't, most of them don't hate religion. Most of them aren't against religion. They are, in fact, more like religious thinkers, the great doubters, than the average person who doesn't ask any of these questions and sort of just goes along. The The great doubters have tried to uh, figure out how you can live, and they've very much respected the answers that religion has come up with. They just have to fill in certain parts differently because they don't think that the world is being guided or have has been created or is being judged by anyone. And if if you don't think that you're being watched, and if you don't think that, for instance, morality comes from some outside source it immediately gives you an incredible amount of responsibility. If if morality actually it, it comes from human beings and not from, from God, then we can start to think about morality in different ways and start to celebrate the aspect of humanity that generates this thing. And it doesn't mean you have to question the religious morality because indeed the doubters suggest that that came from humanity in the first place hmm. so, so there's no reason to throw it out right but i do want to point out that you also classify some of the great uh heroes of faith as great doubters <laughs> in the mm-hmm. history of doubt and i'm thinking uh, first of all of job which i think mm, is often cited as a pivotal text of what yeah. faith is all about. Yeah. Tell me how you understand that story differently. Well, I think the the story on, on its own um on its on its surface is much more of a story of doubt about divine justice. Yeah. The the story is is one where this extremely righteous man of of uh, in, in the old sense of that term, somebody who not only gives to any beggar that comes to his gate but goes out looking to see if are there any widows with children who need help he he seeks out 
suffering to 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 give help and he is uh he's he's rich and well rewarded by the by by the fates it seems or by god it, it, the job story was written before judaism had an idea of an afterlife but after it had developed the idea of individual uh divine justice so that if you are a good person you are going to have success and that is a doctrine which is very difficult to uphold when things start to go to go very wrong especially when they go wrong for a lot of people at the same time when some disaster strikes and job uh is is well seated and then suddenly because god makes a bet with the devil yeah. about his his honor uh he's suddenly beset with the absolute worst things you can imagine the poetry of the bo- of the book of job is incredible it really makes you feel his goodness in the beginning and the humiliation of the awfulness of what happens to him afterwards where people he wouldn't have hired to clean out the stables before their children spit on him his his own children are killed his he's covered in in sore uh sores all over his body he's he's really at the very bottom and he still doesn't really question God until his friends come and try to console him with notions of how this must be according to some some justice because God is just. And that's when he begins to question and say, no, this can't be. I've shown more moral kindness, more, more morality than I've seen from <laughs> the universe. God I don't, defending. Yeah. yeah, I don't. He just keeps saying, I'm, I'm not seeing it. I gave to the poor widows and he then took away my ability to do so and crushed me. How could that be? How could that be a, a good and powerful God? You know, <laughs> either he's good or he's powerful, but not both. And when God comes down at the very end of the book, the speech he makes never mentions divine justice. He doesn't take it up at all, God. It's as if the Job author was saying, there is no evidence of divine justice, but we still have to contend with peacocks and ostriches and and It's a very birth. flamboyant speech about the grandeur of the creation. That's correct. Yeah. And and it's it's an amazing statement of the questions which are still remaining, even if you dismiss the idea of divine justice. And that's what Job accepts in the end. He, he sort of falls down on his knees and says, yeah, you're right. I don't have answers to those questions. And that's the end of the book. So that the the book of Job has been, when it's told in religious stories, there's always something a little added. Certainly, one never dwells much on how this whole thing was a sort of careless bet with the devil. Um, But even more than that, the idea that Job's questions about justice are never addressed, you know, the religious interpretations of this story just gloss over that and gloss over the rebellion and just say, look, Job was given many trials and in the end came back to God. And that's not the story as written. When you read the story, it seems to be much more a howl against the injustice of the world. And that's how it's been interpreted by doubters throughout the millennia. They Doubters have cited Job more than perhaps, you know, or at least no, no, no text more than Job in their statement of, hey, there's something wrong with this formula. You're right. There are people out there that are suffering and yeah. who we cannot blame for it. You're right. Um, God shows up in natural wonder and paradox. 
But that's mm-hmm. the nature of God that's revealed in that story. But tell me what, I'll say, with that interpretation that you have of, of what happens in Job, what does it say to you about the Jewish religion, that it's part of that canon? Sure, and it's also part of the the Christian canon. Yeah. And, and indeed, Islam took it, took up the Old Testament as its own, too. The The ways that modern Judaism has relied on its own story of questioning is is really quite amazing the the idea that we can understand god as as anything that we can that we can explain god that we can say anything about god that's been been problematic from the beginning maimonides in the mm-hmm. in the middle ages is certainly one that that took up this idea and said we can't say anything about god if you want to talk about god you can use negations you can say he is not powerful he is not uh, existent he is not but you can't really say positive things because it doesn't actually make any sense. But you can go ahead and believe anyway. And that's it's another one of these ways that doubt has created the modern idea of belief. I think the biggest way that that's happened is in Christianity, mm-hmm. the idea of, of, of doubt as creating belief. All right. You also write, after Jesus at Gethsemane and Augustine in his garden, doubt was never the same. <laughs> Tell me about Jesus as you see him as a doubter. Well, he's clearly um, a historical figure who was very much a believer, very much a, a, a person of conviction, and so that I don't see him as a um, you know classic figure of doubt. But his contribution to the story of doubt was huge. First of all, the whole notion of modern belief has in it the idea of husbanding one's faith, of dealing with doubt. And that hasn't always been a major part of religion. The ancient Greeks and ancient Romans really, they paid much more attention to ritual and custom and community. You show up at the shrine, you do the thing, you make the sacrifice, and it doesn't matter so much what you believe. As as long as you didn't proselytize it, they didn't even come after you. Even if people knew that you were an atheist, it was okay. It was it was the act, the behavior that was most important. And in ancient Judaism, also the the Mishnah has a, a line in it in in the voice of God saying, "Better they should forget me and remember my law." Yeah, and that's and that's something which you can see in modern Judaism. You know, if a if a if a kid goes up to a rabbi and says, "I'm not sure I believe," they say, "Well, you know, you you just keep come, you just keep showing up." It doesn't. It, it's not the most crucial aspect of Judaism. The most crucial aspect really is celebrating the the holidays and the feasts and the rituals. And that when Christianity came to being, it's the first of these great monotheistic religions that came to being after doubt had already a huge literature. The ancient Greeks and mm-hmm. Romans had had a huge literature of doubt that questioned how can you have an anthropomorphic God? How can you imagine God suddenly coming into being? What sense does it make to say the world was created by God when we then have to problematize what created God? All these questions were already well worked out. And Christianity, I had always wondered, how does how does a culture that had already dismissed Zeus and Hera then take on this sort of anthropomorphized God 
And the answer turns out to be by taking it on very aggressively, by taking on the history of doubt as its own and saying that we believe anyway, inventing the idea of belief as a leap. So where, so where do you see, t- trace that development for me in, in Christianity? Well, certainly I think that it starts with with Jesus, though he's not responding to the ancient Greek and Roman conversation about doubt, but he is already responding to the idea of of um, how we are supposed to believe all this stuff. And that's what those miracle displays seem to have been about. I write about a, a bunch of them in, in the book and, and sort of cite, quote as much of it as I, yeah. I can from the the text because there are amazing little scenes where he does something and most people don't believe it. And he has to say, well, try to believe because belief is this incredibly powerful thing. Again, we don't know that much about the historical Jesus, but those miracle displays and then you add to him those moments at Gethsemane and on the cross where he where he expresses personal doubt and discomfort with the way things seem to be. You know, in two out of three of the synoptic gospels, the the, the three gospels that we think of as the most historical, his last words are, my God, why have you forsaken me? And mm-hmm. that seems to be it seems authentic. Most historians think that it that it would have never made its way into the gospels if it hadn't been something that we simply they simply couldn't have left out because people heard it and it was part of the story. And what that does is it makes faith forever after uh, um have doubt in it in a way that's been very positive for faith so that the experience of of belief isn't simply a the way that you believe the sky is blue without question, you always believed it, everyone says it, you see it yourself, but rather something that isn't provable. That notion of faith, Mm. that's one of the most wonderful things about belief in faith. And so that kind of had to be created, and it's created through the experience of culture that already has doubt in it. And that's why you have to have a Kierkegaard come along and talk about the leap of faith. That's right, but it was really already in the right. religion from the beginning, and he and he is reaching back to to these ancient figures to to speak of it. Right, Abraham. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, what is so again to think of how we how we um, think of doubt in our time? It it, it it's often opposing. Um, the institution and and where I see that story shaping up in the way you tell this history is, you know, you talk about how, and I want you to correct me if I'm getting any of this wrong, but that Christianity then becomes a dominant religion. And you you write that doubt is exiled from the West. Um, But then the church actually itself fights doubt and discredits itself. I mean, creates a whole new world of doubt. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, let me say a little about that. Yeah. That the... um, we often think of the Middle Ages as the age of faith. That's the way that historians talk about the the Middle Ages and the way that the whole culture talks about the Middle Ages. And, uh, you know, when I went to write this book, I knew about uh, a few scenes from the Middle Ages that were – that would be important for the story. But I thought that I was going to be mostly explaining how doubt was exiled. Well, mm. I was quite shocked to see the extent of uh, – of real doubters and disbelievers, even in Europe, even in the Middle Ages. What we see is the the exile does happen, that as Christianity takes over, as Rome falls, we do see the 
the closing of schools, the shrinking of cities, and philosophers tend to head east to the Byzantine Empire, where they thrive for a while and teach, teach the ancient philosophies, and then they're kicked out. There, there's an actual moment when the the emperor says, "Okay, enough with the 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 schools of philosophy," and closes them down, and the philosophers all run towards even further east to Antioch, to Baghdad, to the great new cities of the Muslim empire. Hmm. And there you see this incredible birth of, of doubt in the Islamic world. And we we are generally a culture that has completely forgotten that that ever happened. We hmm. know that there was a Muslim golden age. We know that it was about science. Well, you know, it's almost an obvious step to say, well, if it was about science, there was a lot of rationalist questioning. And people went as far as you can go. They they began by questioning, you know, the, the, the Quran was... The Islam comes along after Judaism and Christianity have basically thought that the age of prophets was over. And here comes this new prophet, this religion that's saying a new prophet came and finished their religion. 700 years later, right. Yeah, it's just, it seems amazing. And so the, the Muslims basically defend that their prophet was true on the basis of the evidentiary miracle of the Quran. And so the beginning of questioning in Islam is often questioning, is the Quran so beautiful that it's a miracle? And that's where you get some of these really um, amusing um, people questioning the beauty of particular metaphors in the Quran and saying, hey, this begins to knock down the theory that this is proof of anything. I could write a better couplet, you know, in a moment <laughs> like than this what, sort of thing. What are some texts or people, you're th- voices you're thinking of there, examples? Well, there there's... Um, there are some who were hated, and there were some who were who were loved. Uh, there was Al Razi, who was a great physician, and he wrote many many books that were um, very much in the philosophical tradition, quoting Galen, but but adding to him, correcting him when he found evidence or um, experiments that proved him wrong. And so he was beloved in the Muslim community. But he also has this huge. Uh, library of doubting books that he wrote. Um, there was also a guy named Ibn al-Warak, uh, and his right. name has been taken up as a pseudonym for a present-day doubter uh, who comes out of the Islamic tradition and who is uh, too frightened for his life, with good reason, to write under his own name. Um, and uh, al-Rawandi is another figure who uh, questioned to the point of of disbelief and was was widely known for having done so and and suggested for instance that that the that a, a good god would have never sent prophets he would have told everybody what they needed to know hmm. that that the idea of sending a few people and a few moments in history to tell the truth and then hoping everyone else believed them and allowing the doctrines to get changed over time and questioned and all that why would a god do that and that that's a really profound question which hadn't come up before yeah. and what happened to that to that lineage, to the, that tradition of doubt within Islam? Where did it go from there? Yeah, it it gets shut down in a kind of uh, there, there's a sudden moment where the idea that philosophy can be studied and some people will be able to keep their faith and other people will go on questioning and that that's okay, that gets shut down pretty suddenly and. Um, 
and and the idea that philosophy is just too dangerous for people to to read. And so it shuts down not only religious doubt but all study of philosophy. What's wonderful is that by that time the the philosophers have crossed, you know, not only um, been in the, the far the, the Middle East, but had, had descended into Upper Africa and across Africa going towards towards Spain and then actually gone into Spain where there was a vibrant uh, Jewish community that picked up a lot of these ideas. And that's where you see the great Jewish philosopher Maimonides, who's yeah. thought of as one of the great figures of the religion. He really put together the the doctrines that Orthodox Jews follow to this day, which was a simplification of what was going on before. And and yet he's staggeringly rationalist and willing to question the Torah, willing to question the sages, and to say, look, there's reality out there. Let's try to figure out what it is, and, and we're not going to let anything stand in its way except that we we know that there is God, but we can't even say God exists according to the idea of existence that we have in our minds because it's all too it's, – it's not it's, – it doesn't make sense. So if you want sense, that's – you shouldn't be talking about religion. And so the uh, – it's an amazing thing. He says everything else should be understood through a, through a kind of rational understanding and even to the point of questioning religion. The only thing that can only be understood by this kind of strange thing called faith is the actual idea of God itself. And that questioning and that studying the the ancient philosophers and the Arabic commentaries, you know, when these, these great Jewish philosophers are studying, most of them are, are studying in Arabic mm-hmm. and writing in yeah. Arabic. And then those doc, uh, those, that energy and those documents and those uh, figures spread into the Christian West. So it's, that's why I call the chapter the loop-de-loop right. because, because doubt is sort of chased out of Western Europe, down through the, through the Mideast, across North Africa, and then back up through Spain into Europe again. And, and then you see this incredible period of medieval doubt, which eventually blossoms into the Renaissance. Right. And, you know, there's, there's sort of a... Um what do I want to, you know, there, there's also this this theme that that runs through the story you tell, and Maimonides is a good example. But you know, another example would be the Reformation. I mean, you name Luther as as a doubter, and there's a way in which this doubt that you're seeing in history is a great energizing and renewing force within religious traditions. Yeah, without question, it's hard to imagine what religious tradition would be if there weren't people looking up and saying that they disagreed with with what had come before. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that uh, has wonderful stories when you have something like Zen, which is in itself yeah. a religion that is based as as firmly on doubt as as you could be. It it, it wants doubt. It says when you're in the state of doubt. That's a, that's the end point you're going to, and that's the closest to seeing reality as it really is that you can get. And so there's this, you know, rich tradition of doubt, and yet, you know, in the next generation, you have someone questioning Zen from within, sort of teasing and making fun of the idea that wearing these yellow robes and sitting for hours could do you any good, and yet still doing it so that um, there are 
each generation's doubt is the next generation's certainty in some ways. And so there, there comes a new doubter. Um, when, when I talk about someone like Luther, Luther is important to the history of doubt and uh, he's crucial to the history of doubt. He's not that much of a doubter in, in, in the sense that he really denigrates doubt. He says that he doesn't like it and that he's, he's angry at most of Christianity or at all of Catholicism for having allowed so much doubt into its doctrines. Um, on the other hand, he, you know, I mentioned that we have to see him as somebody who's come along and questioned every aspect of the religion he was born to. Yeah. And that's, that's an aspect of doubt as well. Right. And I think I, I always like to think that you know, he was a monk and he, he still thought of himself as a good Catholic, a better Catholic, as he posted those theses on mm-hmm. the door. Right. He was he absolutely was, he was doubting from the inside. And you, you do. I mean, you, you, you write a lot about, uh, as you say, these cultures where we think that doubt, as we imagine it now, as something opposed to faith, might not have a place. I'm talking about in the East, Hinduism mm-hmm. and Buddhism, because they're not theistic religions. That's right. Um, but that's also a, a, another universe, another story, isn't it? Right, and one that very much um, mixes with the story of doubt in the West. Yeah. See, I mean, I, I have these different categories of doubt, which... Um, which sometimes felt quite different. You know, the doubt of the philosophical skeptic that wonders, can we know anything, is different than the doubt of the religious skeptic who's saying, or or let's not even call him a skeptic, the religious doubter that's saying, I don't think there's a God up there, I don't have any evidence for that, seems different from, say, Zen doubt, which is cultivating a not knowing. And yet, the these three types of doubt seem to appeal to the same type the same characters throughout history to be celebrated by by the same characters so that you you have schopenhauer uh lauding both the the religious doubters who have come before him and uh, in the west but also the the eastern notion of of nothingness mm. and that's that's one of the other things that was so surprising to me, that doubt is this cohesive story across <laughs> history, across time, across the planet, and that it knew its own story for most of history, that century after century produced histories of doubt. And it's only ours that seems to have forgotten about the whole thing. And so I was really sort of giving it back to the world. Right. Um you know, we've, gosh, we've covered a, a lot. We've hmm. just skipped across a lot of history, and the book is so dense and so rich. And I wonder if, um, before we move on to really talking more about larger themes and what it all means and applying it to today, you know, are there, are there any other characters, people, pieces of writing that you particularly fell in love with or discovered as you did this, that who we haven't mentioned yet? I don't think that we talked much about Ecclesiastes, right. um, which is... A, a text which, again, um, you know, Montaigne carved ecclesi- pieces of Ecclesiastes into the rafters of his study. I mean, he's, he's the 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 author of Ecclesiastes, where where Job was a, a howl. He's he's got a doubt that's more of a wink and a shrug. He he suggests that we we really don't know that prayer helps, so don't do it. Um, <laughs> vanity just, of vanities, all is vanity. That is correct. Yeah. yeah, he says, you know, if you can accept into your 
into your real deep knowledge of the world, that everything is change, that, that things aren't fair, that the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong, but, but time and chance happeneth to them all. And when you can really get that into your head, you can have whatever happiness there is in the world. That, that's what it is. And his positive advice is really to, to dwell more in the house of mourning than the house of mirth and I mean, to keep your eye on the, the fact that change happens and that sadness happens and to love your spouse and to get some good work to do and, and do it with all your might. I wonder how your rediscovery of this history and retelling of it has changed the way you look at the form doubt takes in our culture in the 21st yeah. century? There's, a, a, I suppose, a couple of things that come to mind, but the, the, the most important is that I thought of doubt more as negation than as positive theory for how to live, and I've been moved and, and changed by seeing the kinds of suggestions that were made for how to for how to live, and to see that those suggestions are really so close to the kinds of religious suggestions, they just they just avoid the one where someone's t- taking care of it all, and you can you can just place your uh, faith in in them. But the, the religion does an awful lot of other types of work, just reminding us of death and and mm. reminding us that there that the community is larger than the self, and reminding us of of the the real reasons why we do things and and reminding us that those real reasons get lost in in the minutia of daily life. Doubters, uh, without reference to the supernatural, uh, work over those same themes and come to various answers, some which are similar to the religious and some which are quite different. That That has been an education for me. And also, I, I, I've always felt a little uncomfortable with the way that the modern idea of atheism is so connected with a kind of uh, dismissal of all wonder, of hmm. all ritual, of all community based on um, based on a kind of unspoken, mysterious quality. And when I read the great doubters throughout history, I found that for the most part, they too wanted to keep our eyes on on those things. They too wanted to create ritual and to think about community and to think about how it's the human world that developed these ideas of so much magic <laughs> and and the the fact that community can create. You can get a feeling when you're in a crowd of people who are all there to mourn something or to celebrate something you can or to change something. Uh, you know, it's some sort of protest. You can get a feeling that feels like it's coming from outside you, and it is. It is the group. The group does something to the human experience, to the personal feelings. And that is what religion has always worked with. And yet if you dismiss religion, there's no reason to also dismiss this magical quality of the human experience. And so... You know, I, I I have to use that word magical carefully, but I really am saying that the that that there is something which is very difficult to define in materialist or rationalist terms, which can be defined in those terms, but but you know, in some way, why would you? That that art has always spoken to, but that is sometimes more. It's sometimes more useful to think about its tradition within religion than within art, because. Mm. 
Religion is the repository of human attempts to to get our minds to the right place through actions, through behaviors. You show up every Sunday or every Saturday or every Friday night. Um, you you go through these things. You light the candles. You 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 bring foliage into the house. Whatever it is, you're you're doing something that the whole community is doing. You're taking a moment to think certain thoughts. And to reject that kind of behavior because you're rejecting the supernaturalism on which it's often spoken of be, being based on, uh, that that seems wrong-headed to me. And you know, I looked around and I saw that the modern world gives replacements for that in, in right. ways of you know sports and parades yeah. and all sorts of ways where we come together and experience things. But I thought it would be important to make a note of that, to to notice that what we're doing in those instances is a kind of uh, is is a, a a leaf from the tree of religion. Well, that, it, it, that it's coming from that. And historically, you talked about how, as the institutions came to be discredited more and more, I mean, the secular mm. state filled in some of that. And certainly mm-hmm. in America, there's quite a religious feeling. I mean, you can certainly call it that patriotism. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like if doubt creates a whole <laughs> something some of of religious faith something comes in to fill that hole some other kind of faith um I think that that's that's fair it's it, it it's just that when you start to look at how long the history of doubt has has existed it's older than most faiths i mean it's it's a a tradition of of saying okay how how can we discuss how we got here and what we're for and what it could all mean given that we die at the end? Mm-hmm. That that struggle, that story, that delight has been in existence for, as I said, as as old as, as most faiths and older than many. And so so I hesitate to say that it's um, – it's It has to be a faith – uh, yeah, or that mm-hmm. it's a replacement for belief. I think, mm-hmm. I think belief and and doubt are both wonderful aspects of the human experience, but each one is not for everybody. And and that people who dismiss all belief have missed the point of what religion has been and what faith can be. And that many people who believe know that they're doing so without rational ba- backing for it, but but like it, and that and and you know we don't have rational backing for love either, and we do that. You you can you can accept something as a human thing, but but doubt also has its reasons, and and believers have to see that the there's there's a great tradition of questioning for its own sake and for belief in a rational world that can be explained. It's interesting to me that as I think in the last couple of years, religion has come more to the surface of things. Um, I think mm-hmm. 9-11 had something to do with this, both in terms of the way religion got into the news and the way people responded to it. I think it was bubbling under the surface. You saw it in publishing. I think yes. this public radio program is an expression of it. Mm-hmm. But what I'm also noticing in what you what you write in your book is that at the same time, uh, doubters, I would say, you know, are sort of, it seems like people are feeling a need to articulate what you just said, doubt or a lack of belief as a position that has some integrity. 
Yeah. You know, you have this, you have, you have editorials in the New York Times. Um, right. About the brights. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that a lot of those have been, um, have, have had a lot of good aspects to them, but they're often a little bit more aggressively yeah. adversarial than, uh, maybe that's excellent for politics. Um, and I, I, I think any t- discussion about these things um, in such public arenas is a good thing. But, you know, even something like the Brights, which is, it's a, it's a fine which idea. A it's just in the New York Times, and it's a new phrase, that, a term that's being coined by some to say they don't want to be called atheists, they want to be called Brights. Right, mm-hmm. that that it and that its definition is natural. It's someone yes. who believes in the 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 problem with it is is that the word is of course it's suggestive of more intelligence <laughs> yes. than you know what what are the others the dims yeah. <laughs> and that that's that's a little problematic. So what the point that I want to make is that in you know in the the grandest scheme is that right now the truth is I don't think that there is much pride in doubt or much recognition that it has a rich history. And I think that that's really crucial right now, especially because because of the way that belief is coming up again as part of policy, that mm-hmm. that we can have um, a, a president who says that he has faith in um, – that, that his faith in in a religious way is also what's guiding him in policy – and that kind of that kind of idea um, is it's got to be met with the the voices of people who are looking at things from a, the other side. And right now, you know, well, I think I'd like to contextualize this a little bit and say that the beginning of the twenty twentieth century was a wonderful America in the beginning of the twentieth century was a wonderful time to be a doubter. You know, Thomas Edison <laughs> tells the New York Times he doesn't believe in in an afterlife. Right. You know, that's something that that most people who don't believe in an afterlife wouldn't tell the New York Times today. It was thought of as the the, the whole idea of nonconformism, of questioning, of bucking the the dominant idea was celebrated as part of what democracy desperately needed, really from John Stuart Mill and, 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 and Harriet Mill onward, the idea of liberty as being something you have to keep enacting, otherwise you'll lose it. And that was celebrated in the beginning of the 20th century, and we really see that closed down with the Cold War because the United States felt that it had a, well, it had a, a violent, tense uh, enemy in communist, uh, in the communist world, and that communism was equated with le- making uh, legalist uh, gestures of atheism. Well, that made it seem that atheism was treasonous, and that's when "Under God" went into the pledge, and "In God We Trust" right. went on all the money. And when you look at the congressional record, it was very specifically against communist atheism that those things were done. Well, we live in a very different world now. In the early 21st century, the, the, the murderous tension that we have in the world is with a, a, a group that doubts with certainty. less than we. <laughs> right. That's right, with, with fundamentalist religion that's willing to, to commit terror. Yes. And so it's time to change our, our stance a little bit. Well, and that's where I think it's illuminating the way you 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 sh- you talk about what the substance of doubt has been through history is that it is not nihilistic. It 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 has substance and it has virtues of 
thought and knowledge and and even self-doubt, right? <laughs> Self-questioning. That's right. And that the whole, the 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 great figures that I, I love the most are, are ones who continue constantly to question. They may, they may decide for sure that they don't believe in God, but they don't decide for sure that they really know what the universe is all about. They decide for sure that questioning's for them. <laughs> like, like who? Who do you think of? Who comes to mind? Oh, really, there are, there are so many that, yeah. that fit the category. But, um, you know, I, I think of someone like Spinoza. Uh, you know, there are a whole list of people who, are, who were best known as non-believers uh, during their time that are now thought of in, in other terms. And, and Spinoza is definitely one of them. He was thought of as, as a great atheist. Um, he never says he was an atheist. He always thought that the, the grandeur of the universe was enough to keep one with with religious feeling but when he was asked to define what god was he said it is the universe it's the universe mm-hmm. unfolding mm-hmm. and that's that's god um thomas hobbes we think of as as a political thinker because nobody ever reads the entire leviathan anymore <laughs> but if you do there are full chapters on religion that just scathingly dissect every aspect of revealed religion all the way to there being a god um, hmm. And and to be a hobbist was to be an atheist for centuries. Hmm. Thomas Paine is another great one. We think of him as having you know written pamphlets that that encouraged the young colonies to break with uh, to break with England. But he was equally known for uh, for for the Age of Reason, where he he just takes apart religion, but again celebrates the idea of questioning, the idea of evidence. He's the first figure that I found to celebrate Doubting Thomas, who was one of the least discussed apostles of Jesus, who didn't happen to be there. He was off doing something when Jesus uh, apparently came back to life. And the other apostles tell him about it. And he says, yeah, I'll believe it when I put my hand in the wound in his side. And Jesus shows up and says, here I am. Go ahead, put your hand in. And, and, you know, Doubting Thomas then believes. But Tom Paine says all those years later, if it was reasonable for Doubting Thomas to ask, I want personal evidence, it's reasonable for me to ask it. Hmm. And he says, okay, Tom, Tom, the, the, the Apostle Thomas got his evidence, but I haven't. And he says, Paine says, revealed religion is only revelation to the person who actually had the experience to the next person it's hearsay and one more person you got gossip on your hands <laughs> and, and why am i supposed to believe it and that's a you know these profound questions right. um i have to ask you uh, mm. are you do you consider yourself to be a religious person hello hello oh what happened there, I'm back. Now. Oh, okay. I don't know what happened. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, okay, start again. Are, are you? Do you consider yourself a religious person? No, I consider myself a doubter. Um, I, 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 I'm in a difficult position because having read, having having read the documents that I read in order to write this book, and having thought them through and written the book, I find that the modern uh, terms atheist, agnostic, and believer, yeah, are are so wrong-headed, so misunderstood and sort of um, calcifying uh, sections of thought that really need not be calcified that I really hesitate to um, to align myself with any of them. Okay. So, yeah. So what? tell me what's gone wrong and what you would propose instead. 
Well, I like the conversation to be more fluid, and so, and I'm willing to to answer the the question that you're getting at with more, um, uh, more sort of piecemeal terms. Yeah. I, I I can say that I don't believe that there's any thinking to the universe. I don't believe that there's any. Uh, overall force that created us is watching us and gave us a, a, a text to follow. Um, I I don't think it's particularly useful either to talk about a force that's coursing through all nature and is somehow cohesive. I don't believe in an afterlife, though I can't imagine how anyone could get any evidence whatsoever on that question. <laughs> so uh, certainly that's one where you say, uh, you know, the, the force of life and consciousness seems to be material. Uh, all the evidence that I've been able to glean is that it is it is a byproduct of an epiphenomena of the material. And yet, again, it's a weird enough phenomenon to say, all right, uh, you know, it's it's precise uh, conclusion would be difficult to discuss. Nevertheless, yeah, these basic ideas of religion don't seem right to me. On the other hand, I... I feel that it is that religion has been such a crucial aspect of the human experience and that people who that that I won't align myself with with any doctrine which entirely rejects it as say bunk or some some mass hysteria foolishness um childishness the those aspects of religion uh, though there's those aspects of of atheists' discussion, I think, are reasonable if you point them at very specific types of religious beliefs, okay. specific moments. But overall, I think it's really it, – you, you, miss, you miss too much uh, of, of what's really going on um, in those ways. And that's why I'm so careful about my terms. Yeah. And I just want to read uh, – it probably won't be in the show, but I, wrote, mm. I, I copied down this, this longish quote from your book. It's just such a beautiful piece of writing. And I write – that we love and that love, among other possibilities, brings forth life is very strange. The birth of a child can bring extraordinarily, extraordinarily religious feelings because it is such a good thing, but also because it makes no real sense. Where did this miniature human being come from? Technically, we made it out of nine months' worth of French toast, salad, and lamb chops. Technically, our bodies hold tiny little instructions for how to build human eyes, a language center in the brain, and a human spirit, fussy, joyful, or otherwise. But how strange that such a thing as fussy exists and is created thusly. I mean, you're avoiding the word mystery there, but <laughs> but yeah. but the word strange is a synonym for mysterious sure, in that case, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and and there's. It seems that if you have a doctrine, uh, such you know, a version of rationalism or a version of atheism that that makes it so that you have to be worried about using the word mystery, you've got yourself a, a too constraining a doctrine. Yeah. And so I I I I think that that's what's so, been so wonderful about doubters throughout history. They haven't been an all-out turf war against religion. They haven't been afraid to. You know, Epicurus says, you know, it feels good to pray. You might as well. <laughs> well, that's an amazing statement for someone who says that there's no one listening. And and the idea that um, that we don't have to be against religion or against the idea of mystery. How how can you really be against the idea of mystery and have your eyes open at the same time? It doesn't it doesn't make sense to me. But but mystery then doesn't mean I got to fill in the blanks with with, you know, ideas of my own imagination. Though 
when people say that they they've spent you know uh, years in the desert and and they've had certain experiences i think that it's it's perfectly reasonable to hold those experiences, those feelings. Or, you know, you don't have to go off into the desert, just the feeling of faith. That's an important thing. And I, I, I don't think it needs to be dismissed in a kind of panic of we've got to control the other side. You know, if, if we sort of can respect these ideas and say, yeah, life is mysterious. It is very strange. Just the fact that, you know... We, we are these animals who have these kinds of thoughts. It's, mm. all, it's all pretty wondrous. Mm. And, and doubters have celebrated it. And, and, and that's the kind of doubt I want to bring into the conversation because I, I think we've, we've really backed ourselves into a couple of corners and it's time to get out. This is really great. And I, um, I think we have a few more minutes. Is that right? You, we, did we set aside an hour and a half for this? Because I, um, I would like to talk about your poetry and hear some of your poetry. We we have until four fifteen, and I didn't bring any poetry. Why oh, you did didn't bring any poetry. Okay, I knew we discussed it, but I could, I I there certainly I could I I have some in my mind. Do you have the book there? I have the book. Um, I have the next ancient world. Is that the book? Yes. Yeah. Um, Gosh, I can't believe I forgot. That. Well, that's all right. Um, mm. Well, you do have you have some lines in your mind. <laughs> Is that what mm-hmm. you mean? Yeah, no, but I have a few, a few whole poems. And um, I, certainly one. Okay, Let, I mean, let's just something. I don't know. Job that we talked about is is a poem, and and yes. one of the things that goes wrong with the way we read sacred texts sometimes is I think we don't read them in the literary form in which they were written, and you know, poetry is a very particular way of describing truth, isn't it? Or talking about Absolutely. life. And uh, so I don't know if I want to confine this necessarily to this theme of doubt in your poetry. But, but if we start talking about your poetry now, I mean, how do you, how do you continue the conversation we've been having and talk about your, your work as a poet? Um, I think that the, the way that I've made sense of the different things that I am engaged in is by thinking in terms of the secular sacred. Um, and and what I've meant by that when I've said it to myself is that the the idea of taking a moment to to really explore the particular feelings, the particular experience of being human and and letting that expand and take up more and more space that's that's the core of the the poetic act of of trying to um, trying to make external the internal, trying to share the, the secret worlds that we're all stuck in. Um, and that, you know, it's, it's so hard to really tell anyone how you feel, <laughs> to really share these kinds of experiences. And we, we do the best we can, but that's what, that's what I think of poetry as, as doing. And you really have to quiet yourself down and really try to get past the cultural cliches we use, which are very useful for, for common conversation, um, so that you can tell about you know, what you're feeling in these shorthand ways. But if you want to say something new, you have to crawl past them. <laughs> it's a lot of work. <laughs> and then come to what's, what's there underneath it. And, and the... The way that poetry does that w- with a complex language is is has always been fascinating to me. So that I, I, what I mean to say there is that 
as much as I think that the important poetic act is the the truthfulness of the way you can represent what you're feeling and thinking, at the same time, poetry works because of its meter and its rhyme and its its techniques. It 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 can worm its way into your soul it's the mm. way that the way that uh, that music does but music is music and it's it's not just uh it's not just the sort of pure idea and music can get get into you and 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 move you around and with poetry you need the words to do that job and so i'm i'm very concerned with shaping the words and the way that the words show up on the, on the page and the way that they sound. Um, yeah. You know, we can, um, when we produce this, we can also have someone else read, read some of your poems. So maybe we can talk about, you know, I'd like to ask you, just given what you just said, describing the, you know, what, mm-hmm. what are some of your favorite or most cherished poems that come to mind that are a good example um, of that? I think the poem September is a, a poem that brings up a kind of contemplative uh, it, it just it seems to work for people in this way that it, it, it reflects a way that we all feel at a certain kind of moment um, that there's really nothing else that, that does that. Uh, September is, is definitely one. Waiting to happen is one that um, especially uh, has it's, it's, it seems to create this resonant moment, this effect. Um, there's a villanelle if you want to be a badass, which is a <laughs> yeah. funny title, but it also that one seems to have this almost yeah, it has a mysterious kind of pull. Um, there, I, 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 I can recite one short one for you okay. if you like. Okay. Um, this is called History, and it, okay, History. Even Eve, the only soul in all of time, to never have to wait for love, must have leaned some sleepless nights alone against the garden wall, and wailed, cold, stupefied, and wild, and wished to trade in all of Eden to have but been a child. In fact, I gather that is why she leapt and fell from grace, that she might have a story of herself to tell in some other place. Mm, that's that's wonderful. a short little poem. Yeah, so it's just great. You know, you get the feelings and the rhyme sort of you notice the rhyme late in the poem and yeah it just works in this almost little prayerful way because it does capture for me it just it captures this this experience of of how who we are is so much based on our memory and our past and and who we get to be in the future is so dependent on that and and it's a constant shuffling and yeah, just you know, it just came out of thinking about the idea of of Eve, you know, just to to be born fully grown, and certainly mm-hmm. in our present psychotherapeutic world where we talk about you know being formed so much from those early years, it it, it you know the, the poem just grew out of that kind of thinking. You know, since we're talking about doubt and faith, I I have to ask you about this. It's really a litany. Um, which is entitled, mm-hmm. No, I Would Not Leave You If You Suddenly Found God, yeah. which is so <laughs> remarkable. I mean, tell me something about that. I have a feeling well, there must be a story about writing that. There really is, yeah. Uh, 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 
uh, a dear, dear friend of mine was sort of joking and laughing and told me that she um, sometimes considered being um, sort of uh, re-entering. She, she'd grown up in a very religious setting and had um, moved to New York City and 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 poetry and ideas became her life and um she was she was just joking that she sometimes would consider the idea of returning to religion and that uh that she was worried about my response to it and and because we were very very close and i sat down and wrote this poem because what i wanted to say was that the world to me is a wonderfully mysterious place, and I am awestruck by the feelings and the strangeness and the magic of it, and that the expression of that in terms of God is not something I have any problem with at all. Um, it's not the way that I express it or the way I experience it, but the the idea that that I because I'm doing so much work on this idea of doubt, would shun the that experience that that bothered me. I wanted to somehow get down on paper some kind of the prayerfulness with which I I or think about um, doubt. Ex- yeah, express <laughs> the yeah yeah. No, and so it really became a litany of of praise. You're right. So there 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 must be. I don't know. I'm looking at this on one two three. Four, for five pages, there must mm-hmm. be 50. Per, do you know how many lines there are in the poem? I don't know. There <laughs> must be several hundred, I think. Um, Sounds right. Yeah. And they almost all begin with the word praise. There might be yeah. one exception. Was that hotel? <laughs> that? Right. Yeah. Um, did you write this all sitting down at one sitting, or was it over a period of time? Um, most of the poetry I write, including this, comes out pretty much whole and then is whittled away and worked on and added to. Um, so that in a sense, yeah, I sat down and it was the, you know, when it said, you know, praise that I, ha- I have a party that to go to tonight. <laughs> that, that really was a party at her house. And, and, and it was it was a specific moment that's captured in the poem. And yet, no, I, I it, it, it almost never doesn't need adjustment and tightening and changing and adding to in order to, in order to sort of capture what it was I was really trying to get at. It takes time. I don't. I don't have a perfect last question for you, um, Kate. Okay, this has been really delightful. I mean, is there is? Oh, oh, are you related to Anthony Hecht? No, not at all. No, not no. at all. <laughs> Is there anything else that you feel we haven't mentioned that you want to say to end this? Um, we certainly have enough for a show here. I guess just that um, that that the that the book doubt is it's it's full of stories and 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 that I fell in love with so many of these characters and that the stories I especially love conversion stories where someone has an awakening into into these questions and that the 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 idea that these idea that these questions that these histories are dry is is so wrong-headed when you go back to the original text and I've tried to capture that in the book so that I I, I guess I just want to say that you know 
the the book is just teeming with all these different personalities who approach the subject from different sides and that I tried to step out of their way and let them be their own kinds of doubters and not at, at all impose the story that, you know, that in any way represented my beliefs in any particular way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think you did that, too. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been really fun. Thank you so much for taking all this Thanks. time. Okay, we'll let you know what's happening with this and send you a CD and tell you when it's on in New York and all that. Great. I would love that. All right. All right. Okay. Bye-bye.